Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Better to speak five words that give instruction, Paul explains, than 10,000 words that mean something to you but are useless for everyone else. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 1 to 19. Prompted by listener feedback, this week's episode begins with a review of the function of sin in the Torah and its implications for Paul's gospel. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 117 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I had the good fortune this week of sitting down with one of our listeners who wanted to follow up on our work and talk about ideas from the podcast. It was a great discussion. And one of the questions that came up in conversation came up at the end, and we didn't have time to talk about it. And so I told him, We'll answer you on the podcast. So here we are, Richard. Now, the question is something that, in a way, is kind of exhausting because I've gotten used to this question over the years. You've gotten used to this question. It is a logical response to the biblical narrative from a human vantage point. And the question was about consistency. How can you say, Father Mark, that we have to submit, 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 submit to the Torah when the Torah says that this sin is wrong and this sin is wrong and this sin is wrong, how can you on the one hand submit to the Torah or say that you should submit but on the other hand not condemn these sins? When we talk about consistency where we have lists of sins or lists of actions that we're supposed to be taking it's a big variety. Everything from what kind of clothing you should wear, what you should plow in your field, and what foods you should eat. But there's nothing on the surface that allows us to take not eating shellfish as less important than some other rule. So whenever we want to say, oh, well, what about this sin? First of all, when people say that, they're usually talking about a sin that they don't commit. So, Which is why you can't dismiss the commandment not to eat shellfish. This is very important. The reason God gave the commandment not to eat shellfish is so that people who weren't engaged in prostitution could still realize that what they do is equally wicked to what a prostitute does. I think an assumption behind this critique that there's a contradiction in what we're saying is the assumption that being a prostitute is more sinful than eating shellfish. And scripture does not allow that distinction. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot when we've been looking at 1 Corinthians is that I am not allowed to evaluate the sins of anyone else. Even Paul is not allowed to evaluate the sins of himself. When he says that, it doesn't mean he's not allowed to look at his sin. It means that he's not the judge. 
So if Paul can't be the judge of himself because there's someone higher, how much more so with he's talking about his peers? Now, with Paul, there is no peer. But with us, there are peers. And here's the problem we run into. If I say I am committing such and such a sin, which is not as bad as the sin that so-and-so is committing, I've already meandered from the path because I am not able to evaluate the sin of other people. Not only do we see this in 1 Corinthians, but we see this in Matthew. One of the things that Matthew does in the Sermon on the Mount that I don't hear discussed enough is he removes the ability to evaluate other people. If you are praying according to the Sermon on the Mount, no one will know you're praying. If you are fasting according to the Sermon on the Mount, no one will know that you're fasting. If you're giving alms according to the Sermon on the Mount, no one will know that you're giving alms. Which also means that you don't know who is praying according to Matthew, who is giving alms according to Matthew, and who is fasting according to Matthew. And it's important here to state clearly and plainly that anyone in any station or with any identity or marked with any label from any sin whatsoever, there is no sin that you can imagine that carries with it a label that doesn't fall under this judgment of the Bible, that you can be a person who is living in that sin with that label, and you could be righteous according to God's wisdom, and you could be a person who doesn't eat shellfish and who's never, ever participated in prostitution, never done anything that the Bible labels as a sin, and it will get you nowhere, and you can be condemned. And what if someone comes into the assembly and is bringing a sin that's divisive? What if there are people who do this? 1 Corinthians does not apply to this. 1 Corinthians only applies to how you deal with the assembly. Do you work through love and submission to unity of the assembly, or do you not? Well, and you had a great insight about the Gospel of Mark. For years, we've ridiculed this idea of the Messianic secret. Scholars talk about it because they don't know how to handle the instruction that Jesus repeatedly gives in Mark when he does something kind to someone and then he tells them to be quiet. You could talk about it in terms of the admonition in Deuteronomy against signs and wonders. You can talk about it in terms of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father because it's the prerogative of the Father to decide when the work of Jesus would be opened up for everyone to see and so forth. And I think all of this is correct, but you had a very interesting insight. When someone receives these miracles, the point is don't go telling everybody else because it's none of their business. It's your business that I did this thing. Because what happens when people make it their business to go and advertise? They make themselves the reference. Oh, there was a guy who healed me. Oh, really? Tell us about this guy. Oh, let me tell you about how he healed me. And then it becomes me, 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 me. If you want to know, like the man blind from birth, he's correct. Why do you keep asking me? If you want to know, if you want to become his disciple, go talk to the one who talk healed me. Talk to him yourself. Talk I to him your, am not the reference. I am not the reference. His teaching is. And so when a miracle happens, people want to run out and bring people in. You know, we get a, a wonder-working icon in our church. We want to put flyers out throughout all the city so everyone comes to our church to see God is at our church. If you believe that you are right, and then you give lip service to being a sinner, and I realize that we're no better than the prostitute, but you still believe that you're right, or there's a right way to be, or there's a right kind of person that you aspire to, you cannot accept the gospel of our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
you cannot. I want to be clear, this is a very, very serious matter because most people do not accept the gospel because on some level, there is some part of what they think that they will not question. There is some belief that they believe is sacrosanct, some idea that they believe makes them right or is right or can make them right. They believe on some level that there is a difference between their group and other groups. If you believe that, you do not accept the teaching of the Bible. If a prostitute comes into the assembly and you see that there is division as a result, the only question that 1 Corinthians allows you to ask is, why are you not adhering to love and submission? That's the only question you can ask. Not, are they doing the right thing? And when Paul talks about handing someone over to Satan, you should be thinking, please don't hand me over to Satan. You shouldn't be thinking, this is Paul's handbook on who to hand over to Satan. Right, let's look at the bottom 5% of the parish, hand them over to Satan every year just to make sure we're keeping things no, clean. No, but, but Father Mark, which sins do we hand over to Satan? This is the wrong question. And until you're willing to step over the edge of faith where you have nothing to stand on, that is why pistis is the word that is repeated in the gospel because... If you don't have trust, you will not embrace the free fall where you have no leg to stand on. And 1 Corinthians says, you're free. You can do what you want. And we see it in Romans as well. All you have to do is adhere to love. Everything else is free to you. But he undermines the way that people use their freedom as anti-love. And that's when he condemns them. But the condemnation is against those who use their freedom at the expense of others. They use it as power over others. They use it as power to condemn others when they don't have the right to be the judge, as Paul has also explained. You can't love someone and be the judge unless you were specifically put there for that purpose in the hierarchy. You cannot, I repeat, you cannot extract a morality from the Bible. You can only deal with the text that is being read and apply it to yourself to yourself yourself. to yourself 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 if you apply it to someone else then you become the pillars in galatians you become the enemy of god you cannot apply the rule to anyone else you cannot make assumptions about anyone else You are not allowed to assess anyone else. You're only allowed to submit to someone else and to love someone else. That's all you're allowed to do. Because anybody who's been around for any amount of time and has opened their eyes and their ears to life knows that the person you least expect to manifest wisdom can manifest wisdom. The person that you think is the most cruel might be the most loving. You cannot tell. You cannot judge. You have no right. The judgment seat belongs to God. You cannot set up a morality and then say they're right and they're wrong. Hand them over to Satan. Keep them. When Paul talks about handing over to Satan, he's talking to you in the inside of the inside of the Holy of Holies of the womb of the community. When the scribes and the Pharisees ask the question, why does Jesus sit with the publicans and the prostitutes? They're asking the wrong question. The question is, 
why is Jesus sitting with you? That's exactly right. And again, everyone who's religious was going to give lip service to this. Oh, yes, I'm not worthy of Jesus. No, don't talk that way. That's an arrogant statement. Paul can say, I'm not worthy of Jesus. You can't speak, as we'll hear in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. What do you mean, I'm not worthy? You're still using that ugly word, ego. How can you say, I'm not worthy? The prodigal son tried that, and the father ignored him. I'm not worthy to be a son in your house. You're a son in my house now. He is not allowed to say, I am not worthy. You are not allowed to say, you are not worthy. And you're also not allowed to say, the prostitute is not worthy. So let me break it down for you in black and white so that you can either accept it or reject it. There is only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is disloyalty to the scroll. Because if you are loyal to the scroll and you apply it to yourself, you cannot become self-righteous and there is hope for you. If you are disloyal to the scroll or you just decide to pick and choose which sins to apply, which is what you're saying we're doing, but we're not. We're taking it as a whole. I'm telling you right now, whatever sin you think it is that needs to be called out, before we deal with that one, I want to know if you ate shellfish this week. It's a very serious matter. And don't say, well, the law was dismissed. No, 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 you're misreading Paul. If the law is dismissed, that means you only can love and it doesn't matter if they're a prostitute or not. Paul is saying... If you're going to worry about whether or not they are prostitutes, then you are bound by the rule to eat shellfish. And just remember that Jesus spent a lot more time condemning scribes and Pharisees than prostitutes. Let's be clear on that. Now, that does not mean that you dismiss the law because you have a choice. If you want to stick with the law, stick with it and don't eat shellfish before you talk to me about other sins you call bigger sins or more disruptive sins. But if you accept what Paul is telling you is the whole point of the law, which is your emasculation so that you wouldn't judge the neighbor. He's giving you a way out. Just don't judge the neighbor. That is the gospel. That is the scandalon of the gospel, that there is no difference between a priest and a prostitute. In fact, not that, you know, God calls us to bow down to the level of a prostitute. No, that's your incarnation theology, which is wrong. You can't practice the wisdom of the Incarnation the way you talk. Because how can you bow down when you're already on the bottom level? Now, Jesus could bow down because he's a reference. You're immaterial. You don't exist. Jesus exists. You don't exist in the ancient Near East. And now you want to tell me you're bowing down to the level of the prostitute out of your magnanimity and your humility? And also, what does this even mean to bow down? There's no action. There's nothing decisive about the mental and spiritual bowing down. If you're going to bow down to the prostitute, then you buy her a meal. Then you serve her. Then you clean her house. But it's not, then, it's not bow down as in the way Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a slave. No. If that's what you think, you're arrogant and a fool. It is bow down in the sense that we've been telling you you need to kiss the right hand of your master. That's a whole different matter. Because you're bowing down not as someone who humbles themselves from on high. You're bowing down from the bottom, which is the truth of the human existence. So if you come and say, this sin is a big thing and we need to make sure we tell these people they're wrong and we need to take a stand, it's not acceptable. If that's how you're talking, on some level, you are not accepting that you are unrighteous to no avail. There's no way for you to become righteous of your own accord. 
Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Again, Paul is linking the act of love with the act of teaching, the act of prophesying. And prophecy really is bringing the word of Yahweh to bear upon the community. And it's a word of judgment. And so being able to bring that word from scripture as a judgment, this is what it means to prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries, which is a fancy way of saying your personal experience is your problem. Paul's talking about your personal religious experience, the way he talks about circumcision, the way he talks about all sin. As long as you keep it to yourself, it's not germane. It's fine. And Paul's also very practical. Okay, so you speak in tongues. Okay, you're talking for a long time and no one understands a single thing. It's a waste of time. Yeah, okay, then, you know, that's between you and God, but it doesn't help the community. Since this has all been about helping the community, what are you doing to help the community? I think the best kind of theology is apophatic theology because no one speaks, and then you can read the gospel and explain it while they're not speaking. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. And here it's about edification. There is a practical objective for getting together at church on Sunday. It is for someone to read the reading and then to explain it to you. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, which is a nice way of saying it's a self-serving activity. No, that's not what he says, Father Mark. He says edify himself. Yes, but he's telling you, go edify yourself in the corner. It's not relevant to us. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. For the whole letter, Paul's been saying what matters is what happens to the community, not you. It sets up the clear hierarchy. I mean, before we had the different spiritual gifts and tongues ended up towards the end. Now he's explaining why it's towards the end. The reason why it's towards the end is because tongues don't help anybody except the one. But prophesying, bringing the word of Torah to the people, either consoling them or judging them. You, Of course, you console them through judgment. But that's what's going to edify. That's what's going to help unity of the community, which is the goal that Paul has been striving after for this whole time. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. In other words, I have no problem with you going off in the corner to edify yourself. I'm fine if everybody could do it. It's wonderful. It's a gift. But if no one interprets it, it's useless. Actually, providing objective teaching is what counts here. The reference point is building up the community as it's been throughout this entire letter. So your spiritual gifts are only important insofar as they build up the community. Now, Paul cannot say, thou shalt not speak in tongues, even though he's ridiculing how they're speaking in tongues in the church, because his whole point in the letter is you could be a prostitute and be righteous. So why couldn't you mumble to yourself in the corner and still be a child of God Account it as righteous through the grace of the gospel. As long as you're serving the community. That's it. And if what you're doing doesn't serve the community, just do it by yourself so it doesn't become a problem. You can still be accounted worthy by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis on which he condemned the meal at the assembly. When you're eating to build up yourself to make sure that your tummy is full and it's dividing the community then we need to not have that meal anymore. Now, if somebody comes and tries to stop the preacher from explaining the reading, that's a problem that needs to be dealt with, simply to maintain good order. 
Notice how people want to talk about handing over to Satan. What they want is to go find out who's committing what sin and they should be excised for their own good. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about being practical. The way any manager, any economos speaks, we have to get this project done by the deadline. And in this case, the deadline is the Lord's coming. If we don't meet our target date, there will be no extension. So we don't have time to waste. We have to hear the gospel and someone has to explain it. And then we need to keep doing that and keep applying it. So if someone starts speaking in tongues and obstructing the reading, then we hand them over to Satan because we cannot jeopardize our primary function. Well, one question I never hear when people are talking about handing over to Satan, they're always asking, you know, whom should we hand over to Satan? (laughs) Um, They never ask the question of at what time should I be handed over to Satan? Should I be handed over to Satan, Father? No? Okay, thank you, Father, for the grace of not being handed over to Satan, and then I'll continue on. This is the inherent inconsistency with the way that these texts are used. What if someone else is disrupting the community? What if someone else should be handed over to Satan? What if someone else is doing the wrong thing? Why is Jesus sitting with those people? It's never, why am I allowed to be part of this assembly? Why was I brought in? Whenever I hear converts talk about their coming home stories, Once they, quote, came home, unquote, to the church, once you do the actual service, you have to spit on Satan because that was who you were following before. You were following Satan. God spun you around, brought you in, in spite of Satan, who was your master before. God brought you in. You didn't have a great idea and read lots of great books and finally figure out what's the right thing. In spite of your inability to do the right thing, God, for whatever reason, brought you in. So there's a beautiful cartoon, The Simpsons. The dad, Homer, was on a diet, and he was dreaming of donuts. And Satan kept telling him to eat the donut, and he was really struggling. And then Bart Simpson, his son, walked into the kitchen, opened the fridge, took out the milk, and looked over and said, Hey, Satan. Hey, Bart. (laughs) In other words, Bart was on a first-name basis with Satan. And Satan was on a first-name basis with Bart. And you're all asking... Who do we hand over to Satan? You're already there. This is the thing. It's so twisted. Everybody wants to co-opt the ego of the gospel. And you can't. You cannot. You want a system. You want a system. You want to make out of the Bible a system so that you can order the world. But that makes you like Caesar. And Caesar is the enemy of God. God is the king of the universe, and he is telling you, I made a big, fat set of tyrannical laws just for you, special for you. Apply them to yourself. The fact that speaking in tongues is incomprehensible to people and therefore unedifying, therefore not useful, the one time where it may be useful is if we have someone to interpret, and then it can actually edify the assembly. Again, Paul keeps bringing back, it's the assembly, the assembly, the assembly, the assembly. That is the reference point. It's not you as an individual or what you believe. You as an individual are to submit to the assembly. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge of a prophecy or of teaching? Meaning, what good is it if in the end I'm not giving you some bread? Yet even lifeless things either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? And here, this is the birth of computer science. 
because in the old days, that's exactly how computers talk to each other over analog connections, by distinguishing different tones. It's beautiful. For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? If there's a sound with no message, then it's just noise. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Paul is something. You know, Paul is something. This chapter makes my heart dance. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world. That was for you, Dr. Benton. And no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So, <laughs> meaning that you, that you have no mind. You're not able to comprehend. This is the thing. If I'm able to speak in a language that you don't understand, that's great. I'm sure that means something to you, but I have no idea what you're saying. And so, therefore, if you want me to understand, you want me to react, you want me to learn, you want me to perform a new sort of action, change the way I'm living my life, I have to understand what you're saying. If you are an elite intellectual in the Church of Roman Corinth, you're either indignant at Paul's explanation or embarrassed because he's spelling it out for you. It's really insulting. That someone would dispute this is unbelievable. That someone would need to hear this is embarrassing. I often talk about the importance of learning languages so that we can understand the people around us in our community. Oftentimes we put the burden on the people coming into our community, the immigrants and the refugees, to learn our language so that we understand them. But if we are going to edify the community, we need to be able to understand what other people are saying. We need to submit to them. You know, here it's talking about if you want to speak in tongues, if you want to be a reference, then somehow we need to interpret. Now, I can also take on the role of interpreter by learning the language of the other. I don't have to sit around and wait for them. I don't have to wait for them to speak English so that I can understand. I can learn their language. But the point is, how do I serve the community? How do I use my education? How do I use the advantages and the resources that I have that these new people coming into the community do not have so that I can understand their word and so that I can deliver a word to them? The Latter-day Saints are the best at this. They want to deliver the word to everyone in the world. So what do they do? They learn everybody's language before they go and they meet with people around the world so that they can preach the word in their language. This is precisely what they do. They take them out of high school. They teach them Polish They'll teach them Aymara, they'll teach them Samoan. Whatever they have to teach them, they will go and then they will preach in that language. They'll teach them Chinese so that they can go into the suburbs of L.A. Because the point is, how do you deliver a word that's edifying to the other? It's not learning for your sake. It's not acting for your sake. It's not judging for your sake. It's always for the sake of edifying the community. And this is what Paul keeps harping on in this chapter. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. What you do in your spare time is fine, but when we gather as church, let's get down to business and do something meaningful. Oh, awesome. You're excited about spiritual gifts? I'm so happy to hear that. We need someone to take out the trash. Could you please do that? We would love to see you <laughs> express your spiritual gifts. Because the only spiritual gift that matters is one that's in submission to the community. Therefore... Let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Meaning if you're going to do this, we need someone to actually make something meaningful out of it or go in the corner. 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Meaning, it's fine, because everything is fine. It's fine, because no one is more righteous than anyone else, and no one is right, and no one is wrong. No one is better, no one is worse. It's all fine, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the business. So here... If you want it not to be a problem, I'm not going to say you can't enjoy it for your own enjoyment, but it better not get in the way of speaking. So the best way to deal with it is to join it to speaking. If it wrecks my community, you're gone. If it builds up my community, by all means keep doing it. If it does neither, I don't care. We're not going to discuss anymore. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? But I feel the Spirit. Knock yourself out. You can feel the Spirit until the cows come in. We need to actually say Amen to something, and it can't be what you feel or what you experience. It can't be you mumbling in some foreign language that you can't interpret. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. That's what you were saying. You have to, it has to edify the body, not edify the individual. Great for you, but not relevant. I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. This is Paul doing his thing. I'm not impressed. This is the other thing people don't get. When the preacher brags, he's not bragging. He's telling you. I've seen it all. I've done it all. I'm not impressed. He is setting the bar of the patrician. There's no amount of miracles or speaking in tongues or levitating or somersaults or whatever it is you think you can do that's so impressive that's going to impress Paul. Because he can sin better than you. So even your sins are irrelevant to Paul. Get it through your head. I can do somersaults while levitating and speaking three languages simultaneously. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the five words that Paul speaks in the churches. You better believe it. So that I may instruct others also. So that I may instruct. This is the point. There's no point in speaking in church unless you are instructing rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Which are speaking to the air. And if we're going to talk about what people are experiencing when they're edifying themselves in the corner, I think that 10,000 is not a big enough number, but it's relevant in the sense that Romans counted in 10. So it's tens of thousands, meaning we're talking about as many people as there are on earth, you're going to have that many individual words which are all useless and self-serving. Let's stick with the five words that God spoke. Useless because they're self-serving. Have a great week, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.